By now you'll have heard or seen that I'm working with a new golf app called Tangent, who are also sponsoring this show. It's the smartest AI caddy in golf and is able to recommend not only clubs to hit, but target locations based on the math behind strokes gained and your own personal shot patterns. Unlike many other shot trackers, it also takes into account and adjusts for hazards that are out there. It has sensorless tracking with an amazing automatic swing detection that you can use with your Apple Watch or your phone without any need to buy any attachments for your clubs. And my favorite part, the post-round analysis data helps you immediately see where you can improve and gives you simple breakdowns that you can dive into if you want much more detail about your stats. It then links this data to recommendations and actual practice drills that you can use to improve. Getting measurable data for both on-course and practice drills makes Tangent one of the best game improvement ecosystems that I've ever seen. So download Tangent for free on the Apple App Store or at tangent.golf and use promo code SWEET30, that's S-W-E-E-T-3-0, for 30% off. So you'll get a free trial, and if you like it and want to continue, it'll give you 30% off a subscription. So just try it out, play a few rounds with it, and I know you'll love it. So that's Tangent, T-A-N-G-E-N-T, and enter code SWEET30. Welcome back to another episode of The Sweet Spot. This is John Sherman from Practical Golf, and as always, I'm joined by... Adam from AdamianGolf.com. Dot com. So today we're going to do a little something different. We're going to do like a mailbag episode. We've been um, getting a lot of great questions on Twitter through email. Don't lie. We've run out of ideas already. We're, yeah, yeah, <laughs> we're, we're episode we're, 10. We're 10 out. <laughs> episode 10, we're done. So we, so we went to our audience and we're like, please give us material. Um, so in this episode, we're going to tackle three potentially four questions based on how long adam and i yap about each of these which as many of you listen to us know could go on forever um so we're, we're going to go through these and um give you our opinions i think they're all relevant topics to everyone who's listening to this what, what do you think adam you think these are going to be good ones yeah definitely i was going to say let's let's go through the topics before we do it but now nah, let's keep it a secret so people have a force to listen Exactly. I want people tuned in, ready to go on every question. Um, so let's just stop with the filler stuff. Let's get to it. The first question, I think someone, uh, they call it, someone slid into my DMs with this question <laughs> on Twitter. <laughs> I thought it was such a good one that I, 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 wanted, uh, I wanted it to be on this episode. Here it is. How do you balance trying to fix your swing in a round versus accepting variance? And this is a good one because this has come up on multiple episodes when Adam and I are talking about how to become a better golfer, you need to um, adjust on the fly with what you're seeing on the course. But then the flip side to that is, well, how much adjusting do you do? You don't want to constantly feel like you're, you're changing too much. Um, so this is not an easy question. I think we'll, we'll try and give each of our versions of the answer. Why don't you kick us off here, Adam? What, what's your first thought on this versus trying to fix your swing versus accepting what is a reasonable variance in, in, in golf shots? I'd say that's the only disadvantage to increased knowledge and awareness on this type of stuff is that, yes, you, you, so you go through these different stages, right? As, as a beginner, you haven't got a clue what to fix. So you have a bad pattern. You're just stuck with it. 
But then over time, you start to learn how to change it, and then you enter this weird kind of phase where, well, I know how to change it, but when do I change it, and how much do I change it as well? And then you come out of the back end of that after hopefully not a few years, but、uh, it does take time, where you know you know what's a pattern. You know what to fix. You know when to fix it, and you have an improved ability to control the amount. So,、uh, yeah, it, it's always a tough thing. I call it game management. It's not really course management. That deals more with strategy.、Uh, it's more managing yourself. It's a very psychological thing. So, you know, an example: I stand up on the tee. I hit one shot left. Do I now, for the next one, try to correct that? Or do I just let it roll off my back like duck,、uh, like water off a duck's back? So, imagine you have three shots, right? You hit you hit one down the middle, one of them goes a little left, more left than normal, and one of them goes a little bit more right than normal. It doesn't matter how much you train; you're always going to have some degree of that, right? There's always going to be a shot dispersion circle. So some are going to be more left, some are going to be more right. Well, if you don't Change anything mentally. If you just go in there with, say, a blank mind, say someone's able to erase your mind, then you're going to have a, a certain shot dispersion dispersion size. But if you start going in there and you start tinkering after each shot, so say you hit your your one left, and then for the next one you try to fix that by adding something that makes it more right. Well, what if your next one was going to be the right side of your pattern? You've now made that worse. So I always say that if you're trying to tinker with your swing mid-round, you can end up opening up more inconsistency. You can actually increase the size of your shot dispersion circle. So tinkering mid-round is probably—I say probably because there are lots of caveats to that—but probably not the best option. And I try not to do it where possible. I try to just notice certain patterns and. Maybe just change aim points, and I have a tiger quote. Actually, I don't have the exact quote, but I, I know he talked about he was in a clinic, and someone in the crowd asked this very question. They said, "What What do you do on a day where you're warming up and the ball isn't doing what you want it to?" And he said, "Well, I try and make a small adjustment before I go out, but other than that, I will just change my aim point." And what he means by that is, if the ball is going a little to the right on the on that day, he'll just aim a little bit more to the left. Probably both physically and mentally, which is so funny because most amateurs listening to that, or if most amateurs got that advice, they'd say, "Oh, well, that's a quick fix. That's a band aid. That's not dealing with the issue."、And、it's like, well, actually, some of the best players in the world play this way. If they have a if they have a pattern, an issue, they might not try to change it. They might just play with it that day. What are your thoughts on that so far, John? So I think. The, probably the most important part, and we—I know we will go into this in, in other episodes—is is understanding the variance. I think in in the episode where we talked about what is a good golf shot,、um, we went through tee shots and approach shots and what are reasonable outcomes. And for example, on a tee shot, you know, we know that through launch monitor data, a, a typical elite amateur golfer or tour player, you know, if they hit thirty, forty, fifty tee shots, you can expect. A left to right dispersion of about sixty-five, seventy yards, something like that. That's Scott Fawcett's information. Yeah,、right? yeah, yeah. So Scott, Scott is the one who kind of brought that to light, and it really holds up. If I hit balls on my Skytrack after a while, 
a decent session for me is going to be about 65 yards from left to right. That and that is a that's a massive that's a big big chunk. So the takeaway from that in terms of accepting variance is that I know that when I step on the tee, it's okay for me to lift miss a fairway to the left or right. Um, that's going to happen. Or especially with approach shots, I know I'm going to hit some long in the green, left, right, short of the green. So you have to wrap your head around that part of it as understanding the variance of the game. That That's very difficult to do and, and certainly one of the most important things a golfer can do to increase their enjoyment, make smarter strategic decisions, um, and then just have a more positive mental state, kind of letting these the water go off the duck's back, as you say. Um, where I start, you know, when I say answering the question, when do you start fixing your swing, talking about like some of the skills we have discussed face angle, ground contact, impact location. If I start noticing a pattern, let's say, or if I know I I, I miss it on the heel most of the time, I, I mentioned this in other episodes. If I'm, if I'm starting the day missing everything on the heel and I see that pattern on the course, especially with my driver, because of gear effect, I'm seeing that left to right ball flight versus my normal draw. That's something that I am going to consciously try and make an adjustment to. I, I feel like that's a reasonable thing where I'm going to be like, okay, you're striking it on the heel. You could recognize this. Let's consciously try and move that strike point over using those small tools. Yeah, you can't strategize for a shank. It's the only thing I was yeah. going to add there. <laughs> exactly. And so something like that, I would, that would be something I'd be okay with, you know, maybe working on, so to speak, during a round. I'm not going to be trying to change my swing or anything like that. It's just maybe I'll line up the ball to the toe more or something like that. It's a perceptual thing. Um, but I'm cognizant of it and I'm maybe trying to make an internal feel change. Um, another pattern, like let's say I, I mentioned one time I showed up to the course or a tournament with the pull hooks, you know, left going left duck hooks. That's a problem. And if, it, if I if I keep seeing it happen, then I know I need to make an adjustment. That that's a problem that needs to be fixed on the fly. But if I'm missing my targets, you know, left, right, short, long, nothing crazy, you know, I'm not in this mode where I'm trying to keep, you know, making changes because it, it, I feel like it's it's that opening scene of um of office space where the guy keeps changing lanes in the in the traffic jam and he's going nowhere. So I'm certainly not an advocate of just continually making changes during the round so you kind of have to know when to step in and when not to and that that is difficult but that's that's kind of what i do when i see a pattern that is very damaging or extreme versus my normal patterns then i'll probably make some type of intervention yeah i suppose you you just have to be a, a master of knowing when it's a pattern and when it's an anomalous result i almost couldn't say that so a, a random result so yeah, looking at patterns, I have a kind of DEFCON system. So I would say in, in the middle of a round, if I hit one bad shot, it's just like, okay, that's not a bad shot. Just don't worry about it. Keep it, keep it in the back of your head, note it down, but don't worry, don't change yet. If it's two bad shots and they're, they're very similar. So again, two shots going to the left, for example, or two shots out of the heel or two fat shots then I'm going to pique my interest a little bit and say, hmm, okay, maybe this is a pattern. Once it gets to the third, 
And I, I ha- don't really have a perfect system for this because there may be a little gap in between those. So I may hit bad shot, bad shot, good shot, bad shot. I would say probably if I hit three bad shots that are all the same bad shot within about four four swings, then I would say, okay, this is a pattern. This is something in here. And then I have to decide, do I try to change that? Do I try and jump in, be in the conscious uh, seat and and make a change, whether it's just feel-based. Most of my changes round in the round are just like you, feel-based, really simple. Uh, or do I strategize for that? And so with direction, you can obviously just pick different aim points. Uh, but like I said earlier, you can't strategize for a shank. If you are hitting heel biased and it's on the verge of a shank, you probably want to jump in and consciously change that. Um, same for a fat shot as well. You do, you can't, you know, if you're fatting it 20, 30 yards short all the time, yes, you probably could pick three more clubs, but that might not be the best option. You want to be able to move that low point further forwards. And this, this goes into everything that we've talked about as having this toolbox of fixes, right? You can't, you can't be on the course and have those errors pop up and then figure out a fix on the course. No, you've got to have those tools available to you beforehand. I know how to fix a shank before I even do it. So I know if a shank ever pops up on the course, I have one, two, three different things to implement. And that's the other part of my DEFCON system is once I see a pattern, not only do I have things that I can implement, but I have, I know how those implementations change the pattern. So as an example of that, say I'm missing left one day. My first port of call will be to actually just tweak or change the right hand grip. And the reason for that is my right hand change makes a very subtle change to the outcome. It's not a big change. So I can control the patterns by about three, four, five yards on average just by changing my right hand. Whereas if I change my left hand grip, that has a much bigger influence on the on the end result i don't like doing that because it changes it too much does that make sense to you yeah i I, yeah i I wouldn't and i think this depends on the player like i personally would not feel comfortable and this is just where i'm at in my game of of changing my my grip mid-round oh yeah that was just the other episode that yeah that that that's extreme i think it's it's we don't have an answer for everyone because everyone's at a different stage of the game in terms of their skill level. Um, and then you mentioned a DEFCON stage. Like if you have a, if you're DEFCON five, then obviously you need to do some triage, so to speak. Um, you're going to have to do more intense changes if you were having, let's say, shanks. Um, I hate saying that word out loud, but you know, an adjustment needs to be made. So, um, you know, you're, you're trying to navigate this accepting of of golf and the variation that the game gives you and then also at the same time picking up on patterns that are more problematic than normal like you mentioned hitting it fat like if i'm fatting all my wedge shots and the first few holes i'm going to need to make an adjustment or a feel on how i'm delivering you know how i feel i'm delivering the club i obviously need to go on a little bit more shallow path and vice versa i might blade a few um, these things happen with golf, but those are the the patterns I'm looking for. What's out of the ordinary? And the problem is, is that the word ordinary is different for every golfer. <laughs> um, that's just something where that's why I think paying attention to your rounds, maybe taking some notes after tracking your game, understanding your tendencies 
then you'll know what's normal for you and what's not normal for you. And then combining that with the knowledge of what's acceptable variance in the game, that's when good stuff happens. But you know, much easier said than done. It's, it's, it, you're always walking this tightrope of, of getting one right at the expense of the other, maybe. All of this is really the difference between a good player and a great player or an average player yes. and a good player. It's how well you manage your own game. It's it's the reason why, you know, if you say, well, why am I not a tall pro? I can hit it like a tall pro on the range. Well, it's managing. I mean, there are other th- reasons why I'm not on tour, but it's managing these things on the course. I don't play enough on the golf course to be able to understand my own game that well. You know, you need to be playing all the time and implementing these changes and seeing what was too much, what was too little, having these mistakes, but being really introspective. And at the end of the, of the round, you've got to go through these these things. And I always ask players at the end of the round, what were, you, what were your patterns out there? You know, some players will come off and they're like, oh, I played awful today or I played great today. And say, like, well, on the awful ones great. Here's an opportunity. What were your patterns? What was your ground strike like? What was your face strike? What were your left and right bias patterns? And most people can't tell me. They just lump rounds of golf into good or bad. It's like, no, be more, be less emotional about whether the, sh- the round was good or bad and be more analytical about why or, or what you need to change, what you need to improve to get better. So as you said, looking at patterns, um, looking at why it was a good or bad round and then working on your ability to implement the right dose of a change it's it's what i teach every day really all right i'm gonna i'm gonna go ding 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 all right, all right that's time on the first topic yeah. well i want to do four and i'm 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 really pushing for four here so i think we we covered that answer i think we've gone into the answer in different ways in different episodes but it's a very good question i think all players should be thinking about it all right, question number two. If working on a home golf simulator, what should you work on and focus from the start? Um, both of us are golf simulator owners. I have the SkyTrack. Um, Adam has the GC Quad. Foresight, if you're listening, I'm just waiting for that sweet GC Quad to show up. Not that I don't love my SkyTrack, but um, yeah, I've spent a lot of time on the, I think simulators in general, if you can get a good one, not the opt, I wouldn't say the opti shot is, is a good one for this. That's more of a toy than a, and a game than a instructional tool. But, um, I think simulators are awesome practice tools, whether you're using it like in range mode or actually playing simulated golf. And I know I, I've done a ton of different practice methods. Do you want me to start this one off with a few of my yeah, yeah. tried and true? Okay. So number one, I start off every session on my SkyTrack with my wedge distances. So I like to work, you know, anything between like, let's say 35 to 80 yards, those feel shots. And I'm kind of cycling through establishing my feel like I start off with 50 yarders. If I can nail down my distance, I go to 60, 70. So I'm trying to do maybe what you'd call block practice. I'm hitting the same distance over and over again, see how I'm doing. And then I mix it up. I test myself. Um, and SkyTrack actually has a feature for this. You can do like randomized target practice. They have a wedge matrix thing as well. Um, I know GC quad and other ones have their own methods. And then I try and I call out a number like 72 yards, 53 yards, 64. So then I'm kind of randomly trying to hit these yardages. Um, I think that's some of the most fruitful practice I've done on the simulator because now when I'm on the course, 
I don't really worry about those distances when I get them on the course. If I have 74 yards, I just kind of access that feel. And that's certainly paid dividends in my game a lot. So that would be numero uno for me. What, what's your what's one of your favorites, Adam, with yeah, the simulator? I like that with the wedge distances. It's amazing how, you know, before we practice on on simulators, we we do everything visually, right? It's so oh, the flag looks that distance. Let's hit it this hard so it's all visual information but after a while of practicing on a simulator it's almost verbal information you say a number and mm-hmm. your brain can access that like if you say to me 70 yards i can feel it i'm just sitting here i don't even have a club in my hand and i can feel what 70 yards feels like it's really yeah, weird it's inter- you you're like internalizing it i use i kind of go back to the i like the the pels um clock system mm-hmm. so i just have kind of like Again, I don't know what it actually shows up with if you show it on my swing video, but I just have a feel. Oh, that's my 70-yard feel with how far my hands are going back. Um, that's how I internalize it. You know, some people like to, you know, I think they have more variety in maybe their swing speed or how fast they feel like they're swinging. I just like the clock system or my version of it. So, I, I it like the, the word for me is I internalize those distances, I feel like. Yeah, I also use a, a similar clock system. And I, I would class that under the feel category. So it's great to have all of these different things to draw upon. You've got the clock system to hit 70 yards. You've got the verbal cue of saying 70. So that's, I'd say that's a, a different form of, um, of feel control. And then you have the visual form as well and initially like when when someone first gets on a simulator and you give them 70 yards they will tend to massively overhit it or underhit it they just don't have any clue but over time that builds and all of these things can come together so if i'm on the course i can use all three senses i can look at the flag and get that visual information, I can then delve into saying to myself 70 yards, 70 yards, 70 yards, and just feeling that swing. Or I can use the clock system, or I can use combinations of all of those. And it's really nice to have those things to draw upon. And so, yeah, the simulator, working on your wedge distances, it's really, really um, a a valuable additional feel tool, I think. Um, But yeah, I mean, the main thing that I would use with a simulator something that you can't really get on the range is looking at your distances more precisely so getting um yeah just more data on your average distance the spread the, the farthest that you hit a club as well um, i'm not talking about the pull hooks that, that go for miles but i'm talking about you know a well-struck shot that lands on your target what was your longest hit because that that's a good one to know because if you can play that towards the back of the green you'll you'll start to hit a hell of a lot more greens i like that as a strategy well that ties i, I think for me that is one of the more valuable things of using a launch monitor simulator and it goes into Question number one with accepting variance. When I hit 37 irons or hit 30 drivers, and then I look at the shot dispersion, and I know I've struck them all well because I'm really not under that much pressure. So, like when I hit balls in my simulator, like I know that that's the best version of me as a golfer. Um, I can execute way more better because I'm not dealing with the environment of the golf course. There's no pressure. I try and put pressure on myself, but it's not nearly as much as on the course. But what's interesting is when you're done hitting those shots, as Adam suggested, you can see where they're all showing up. And if you're doing it on like a, a challenge, like Skytrack has a, you know, like a green hitting cha- uh, challenge where you can either do random distances or the same distance. And they have a skills challenge where they give you a score at the end of it. 
seeing those results and then looking at that and then taking that out on the course, knowing that like, okay, I can see my pattern with my seven iron is for me, I'm probably missing some of them a little more to the left. Maybe I overhooked them or you can see in relation to the green, seeing those dispersion circles is really valuable for expectation management and strategy as, as well as picking your targets. So that, that for me has been one of the biggest eye openers uh, using the simulator. Yeah, this, this almost feeds into the prior question because I was practicing a couple of days ago and I, I actually had my simulator turned off. So it was gathering data, but I couldn't see it. And when I looked at the data l- later, it was really interesting. Everything was left biased, which is pretty similar to on the course. And it was very tight as well. The circle was very tight. Now, I know that when I have that simulator turned on and I can see the results, my pattern is much straighter, but it's also wider. And there's a reason why. When I see the results, I adjust for it. Yeah, you're adjusting. (laughs) So if I see a ball go left, I'm going to try and adjust. And that's why the spread is wider. So this feeds perfectly uh, unintentionally into the prior question as well about how adjusting can actually increase the size of the circle, even though the bias of it was less left. Okay, so if I'm not conscious, if I'm not seeing the results, if I'm not adjusting for it, I'm going to hit probably about five to 10 yards left on average. I'm going to have some amount of curve. Whereas when I'm being more conscious, I can straighten that pattern out, but it also gets wider. So I have to decide what's better for me. And I think when when I'm training, I'm always trying to kind of straighten that pattern out. But if I'm playing, I'm just trying to aim to allow for the pattern that I have that day. And so, yeah, as that feeds into what you, you were talking about, looking for biases in your shot directions, looking for biases uh, distance-wise as well, uh, looking for your maximum, what your best shot is. Typically, for example, if I hit, say, 58 irons, my best one is going to fly about 175. But my average or my playing distance for an eight iron is actually closer to 160 or 165 depending on how well I'm hitting it that day. So my my average distance or my playing distance for an A-dine can be 15 yards shorter than my longest. And I think most players, we, and we can go into a whole episode on distance strategy, but most players play towards their best every time, right? If they've hit a 7-iron or an 8-iron 175, that's what they use for the for the flag. And that's just not how good players play. So it's all about overlaying, looking at those shot dispersion circles and figuring out what's the best way to overlay that onto the, onto the um, target that you have in front of you. Yeah, and another thing that I love to do because I think we're still planning on doing another episode on our blocked versus random practice, but um, I would... I just think simulation in general is is great practice because it's 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 randomized and it's pressure. Like when I play, I have World Golf Tour on my SkyTrack. So what am I doing? I'm playing a simulated round of golf. I'm hitting my driver. I'm choosing a target on my iPad screen, and then I'm I'm focusing on what I'm doing. I go through my pre-shot routine. Those are all great things, rather than just banging driver over and over again, which I do with my simulator as well and look at the numbers and stuff like that. There is value in that as well. Um, but just playing the games is, first of all, it's fun. It, it takes out the monotony of practice for a lot of people. 
but then you're also recreating a or doing your best to recreate a, a real round of golf where you're thinking about your target, you're changing clubs each time, you're going through a routine, hopefully, and you're really um, you have heightened awareness. Like when I play World Golf Tour versus just hitting shots on the range mode, my level of engagement is so much higher because now I'm competing. I, I want to score well. Um, so I just think playing the simulation is, is just awesome practice uh, because it checks off a lot of really good boxes on, on what makes effective practice for golfers. Um, so that that's one of the easiest things you could do is just just play the game. <laughs> yeah, no, I completely agree. I think you you cover that well. And I, I've been doing that recently as well, and I I absolutely love it. And there is that pressure element because those scores go up on a leaderboard, so you <laughs> there's a lot of pressure, especially as my um, my real name is on there. I'm not an alias on my uh, on my account. Um, so yeah, I mean, I used to do TrackMan combines as well when when I had the TrackMan, and that was really fun because there was so much pressure. You'd go up on the leaderboard, and you obviously don't want to disappoint. You don't want people to see your name up there and see that you can't actually hit the ball that well. Um, and so yeah, it's, you know, I'd get to that last drive or the last three drives. I would be shaking. Now I'm not a very, um, I don't deal with pressure very well. Uh, that's, that's one of the reasons why I'm not a tour pro as well, but it just having that pressure, being able to recreate that is so important when it comes to transferring your game to the golf course and making your practice worthwhile. And you just can't really get that if you're just beating balls with no kind of outcome. And there are loads of ways you can recreate that pressure, even playing games with yourself. You know, sometimes I'll record things. You know, I, I know you saw the fade, draw and straight shot where they're not allowed to cross. I, I occasionally do this where I'll record these things. So I'm feeling more pressure there. It's like, right, I'm going to post this later on social media. So I have to make sure this looks good. And so when it came to that last shot, I'm like, this is, this is probably the 20th attempt I've had at this. I've got to make sure it go. It's, it's good. And there's genuine frustration when I don't get it as well. So yeah, playing these games, simulating the game of golf is really important. One thing, a, a different thing that you can use with uh, launch monitors is testing certain variables. So a real simple version of this would be to test, if you can, hitting a draw to the target and then hitting a fade to the target and then hitting an intentionally straight shot. You know, obviously you're not going to hit straight shots, but you're intending to hit it as straight as possible. And from there, you know, you do maybe 10 or 20 in each category. And at the end of it, I usually look at the results and say, oh, which one was tighter? Which one was a better dispersion? And some days it's a washout, but some days there's a very clear winner. And that's good because then you know when I go on the course, I'm going to play this winner, right? If I'm, if I'm hitting better shots with a draw towards the target, if I have a lower standard deviation, a tight disper uh, dispersion, then I'm going to play that draw on the course. It's pointless me trying to fade it or hit all different types of shots. But you can even do this testing different focuses. I've asked players, I've said to players, what are you thinking of? And they say, they give me a bunch of mechanical things. I say, all right, hit 20 shots thinking of that. We look at the spread. And then I say, right, now just hit 20 shots thinking of the target or hitting a shape, a certain shape down there. And then we look at the difference and I say to them, well, actually, you hit it worse when you're thinking of all of this mechanical stuff. And so that, that's a good way for me as a coach to then convince them of other approaches sometimes. 
When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. LinkedIn is not just a job board. It helps you hire professionals you cannot find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to a new perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. Also on LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Just recently, they even launched a new feature that helps you write your job description, making the process even easier and quicker. And they know that small business owners like myself and Adam are wearing so many hats and might not have the resources to hire, so it's a great place to get help. Now here's what you can do. Post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. That's linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. We have an exclusive offer on one of my favorite golf shoe brands, True Linkswear. They just released their new Lux G Shoes, which is their first big release of 2024, and it is packed with a ton of features. The Lux G is available in both men's and women's models, and it combines tour level performance with a new fit and feel. You'll get the comfort that True Linkswear is known for with their Wonderlux midsole for a supportive yet comfortable ride. The Lux G is also fully waterproof with a two-year warranty, and they have designed it with their padded heel lock system to ensure stability throughout the entire golf swing. But they didn't stop there. True Linkswear always pays attention to the small details. There's padding on the back to prevent rubbing against your foot, an antimicrobial comfort insole, and the Lux G's come in multiple colors. Sweet Spot listeners can get 15% off the Lux G shoes by visiting truelinkswear.com and using promo code SWEETSPOT. Once again, that's truelinkswear.com and use promo code SWEETSPOT, that's one word, to get 15% off their new Lux G shoes. Yeah, I that it's definitely been one of my top benefits of using it. And I made articles out of a lot of my tests. I was doing them as tests. But at the same time, I was fig- I was verifying information that maybe I was experimenting with on the... Like golfers experiment with all types of things on the course. And it's not a great experiment because you're only hitting one shot. And what I've done on, the, on my SkyTrack is I did articles about ball position. So for example, I hit a bunch of shots with the ball in the back of my stance, middle and front with like wedges, eight irons, uh, long irons, and then driver, and then posting the results. And with that, you could see a tremendous change in distance, trajectory, ball shape. And I actually found out that because of my um, tendencies as a ball striker, I de-loft it. Um, I don't spin it a lot. I typically have to move the ball up a little in my stance as as the club gets longer. Um, so I can't hit a four iron in the middle or back of my stance. It just won't get in the air. And I, I verified that with Skytrack looking at my launch angle and you know peak height and all that stuff. Um, or T height with the driver is another one. Like I experimented with different T heights. Um, and this is going to lead into our next questions a bit. Um, but all these different experiments and then and then verifying which one worked the best for me. And then the best part is I take that onto the course with confidence, knowing that 
that setup is giving me the best chance of hitting better shots on the course. Um, that that's been really powerful for me, like knowing that, okay, I'm teeing it up this height every time in this position with my driver and just feeling confident about that. That's, that's been huge for me. I'm all, I'm about to, I'm about to ring the bell here. All right. I'm going to very I'm close to ringing the bell. Put this one in quickly. Uh, that's what she said, Joe. Can we edit that? <laughs> no, we can leave it in. Um, if if anybody knows me, they'll know I I say it probably a hundred. That's what she, she said jokes every single day. But I apologize if I just offended anybody. The childish humor <laughs> get cancelled already. Um, so what was I going to say? Right? Yeah. In terms of coaching, I run these tests myself, and I use these launch monitors. So I, I'm always figuring out how does. X change in the swing affect impact variables. So I might run a test where I hit 20 shots with my normal swing, and then I'll hit 20 shots adding more lead wrist flexion. And then I'll hit 20 shots adding more lead wrist extension. And then I look at the differences. And from that, I can say, okay, when I add extension to the lead wrist, I tend to hit it higher and more to the right. And when I add flexion, the pattern tends to be lower and more to the left. And obviously a whole host of other things uh, change as well. So that's not something that I would recommend all players do. But certainly if you're interested in the mechanics, here's a subtle plug. I have a lot of these tests in my Next Level Golf program. But just to say as a coach, I run these tests. So that helps me when it comes to... uh, dealing with players. If I have a player who is hitting high into the right and I know I need their pattern to be lower and more left, I know through all the tests that I've run that adding some lead reflection is probably going to get them there. All right. Here's the last thing I'm going to say before we move on to our next question. This is a warning. Golf simulators can be great, but if you have like SkyTrack, Amiibo Plus, TrackMan, whatever, that's giving you all these different parameters... Do not go down the rabbit hole with spin rates and all the readings. Like if you don't understand them that well and how launch angle, spin rate, peak height, how they all work together. I've seen so many golfers like go down the rabbit hole where they're trying to like hit certain numbers and they don't really know the significance of them. Um, I would just focus more on the meat and potatoes stuff, like what your ball flight looked like, how far it went. The type of stuff you'd see on the course, unless you have a really good understanding of all of those metrics, um, I wouldn't obsess or worry about them too much. If you're working with a swing professional or a club fitter or someone like that, show them to those people and let them kind of decode it for you. Because I, I just don't want people to kind of make it a, a an exercise and in, in confusing themselves with the simulator either. I mean, it can be beneficial, but at the same time, like... It could be information overload for certain golfers. So that that's my warning. It can get even worse if someone, I have clients who have their own GC quad or track man. And so you've got even more data there. You've got path, yeah, strike, it, face, angle yeah, attack, dynamic loft, swing yeah. direction. And they're like, I don't even know where to start. And so I say to them, look, number one, just look at the face strike number. So it'll tell you whether you're towards the toe or towards the heel. Just start with that. If you can then add on things like, you know, noting down when you miss it left, have a look at the face and the path and try and figure out that, you know, try and get wrap your head around that. And if you just get those two, three things, that that can go a hell of a long way and can cut through a lot of the the wheat, 
Is it right? That's that's the wrong saying, right? <laughs> I always try and come up with these sayings and end you up looking stupid. You have so many stupid. sayings. It's I've, unbelievable. The wheat, cutting the wheat through the chaff. I, I've gone off off on a cliff there. You know what I mean. Getting getting to the meat and potatoes, as you as you said. All right. All right let's go on to the next question. And this one, <laughs> we're going to have a tough a tough time keeping this one short. Okay. Here's the question. A positive angle of attack with driver has distance benefits, but can this have consistency drawbacks? The reason being that a plus five, which means hitting up five degrees with the driver, is vastly different than an iron swing with a zero angle of attack, and they're dissimilar. So the person is asking, I think we now know that if you want to hit your driver as far as possible, you've got to swing up on the ball. Um, And then the question is, it's a good question. That's different than your swing with everything else where you're hitting it off the ground. You can't hit up on the ball with with a ball on the ground or else you're going to have some real problems. So this could get into deep plane and a lot of different things. But what what's your first stab at that question? Well, there are adjustments you'd have to make if you want to hit up on it. But I would just say we already see a putting swing as different to a chipping swing. And we see a chipping swing as different to a full swing. So why not just see a driver swing as different to an iron swing? I think, yeah, pe- people are going to make mistakes if they try and do the same thing, right? If you if you hit your irons, which we're going to be hitting down, oh, I shouldn't say that, right? If we're going to have a negative angle of attack. Neutral or down. <laughs> negative angle of attack with the irons. And you're going to do things like put the ball further forward in your stance, get your body more behind it with the driver to hit up on it. Yeah, people can then, they practice their driver over and over and over and they get better with their driver and they get worse with their irons. And then they practice their irons over and over and over. They get better with their irons and worse with their driver. That's because they're trying to do the same thing with both clubs. If you try to do something different, if you separate them, put them into different categories, I don't see what the issue would be. The only caveat to that would be someone... Um, I was speaking to a really high level player the other day who hits down on it. And he says that he's seen lots of tour players kind of chase the upward angle of attack and lose their games because they were, they were prior very straight golfers, but they hit down on it. And so if you've reached a very high level hitting down on it, you've got to be more careful. Right, you've got to be more careful changing that because you've already ingrained a certain driver category of swing that is a certain way and you're successful with it. And so you'd have to, I suppose, weigh up the benefits, right? If I hit up on it, what's the potential benefit? Well, I could hit 30 yards farther. What's the potential drawback? Well, I'm going to hit fewer fairways, probably. That's likely going to happen. And then you can statistically work out whether that that drop in fairways is outweighed by the increase in yardage. Does that make sense so far? Yeah. Here's what I see on the course mostly. I see most recreational golfers taking their iron swings and using it on their driver, and that's holding them back. That is not improving their games. They're putting it in the middle of their stance. They're hitting down on it, so they hit these low spinning – drivers that don't go very far and they're not very accurate. I think most golfers stand to gain from learning either how to hit less down on it or start getting into that positive territory. Um, I, I think most golfers will see benefits in their distance and their accuracy because they're they're bringing a pattern to their driver that's that's not helping them. 
But as you said, the better the player, the more they have to lose. So if you're a really good golfer, like take Cameron Champ, for example, who's hits it prodigiously far, but not as far as he could because he still hits down on it. You're not going to tell Cameron Champ to start hitting plus five on his driver when he's having a lot of success hitting down on it one or two degrees. But, you know, if you showed me a 20 handicap who's hitting down on it seven with his driver, um, hitting it 200 yards and it's going all over the place, well, I'd say, well, we probably have nowhere to go but up from here, no pun intended. Um, So I, I think most golfers have more to gain from learning how to hit up on it with their driver than lose. Um, and I'm an example. I, I, I view them as different swings. Like you said, I don't hit a 30 yard wedge shot the same way I hit, you know, my four iron and I don't hit my driver the same way I hit my seven iron. Those they're, they're different swings to me. I have them in different categories in my brain and I try and hit up on the driver as much as I possibly can. I've got the ball all the way up in my stance. I'm teeing it high. I'm tilting my right shoulder down a little bit. I'm trying to get this thing up. That's my view on the whole thing. Yeah, I think it's just separating them out and practicing them. Yeah. Pra- just practice it. If you're bad with the driver, practice it and see it as a separate entity. And I, sh- I should make that distinction is that I was not a good driver of the golf ball for a really long time. Um, I was. I had face control issues where the where the – face was pointing at impact, hitting it too far left or too far right. So if anything, for my swing, and you can correct me on the D-plane technicalities here, I felt that hitting up on it more has helped my path issues where I know I don't have, if I'm in to out with my seven iron or wedge anywhere from four to even 12, I can get crazy into out with my wedges. I've been measured at 12 degrees. But with my driver, because I'm hitting so up on it, it, it has neutralized my path where I'm really only like one or two degrees into out with the driver. It's probably my straightest club in the bag now in terms of curvature. So, and I hit up on it anywhere from three to five degrees. Um, so it, it's been a huge benefit to me, I think. Well, I hit up 10 degrees, which is ridiculous. That's insane. Yeah. And, th- and this is the thing, right? I was, I was actually a decent driver in terms of accuracy as a kid, but I was just so short. I've never had any speed. I was, uh, I, I was played a lot of links golf, so I hit it quite low. And I learned how to hit up on it. And I just made the decision. I said, well, I, I, I'm going to try and hit it as far as I can. I'm going to try and optimize launch. And I did. I ended up hitting 10 degrees up on it, which is ridiculous. If you ever see my ball flight, you'll be craning your neck to see it. It's that high. Uh, but it, I picked up a lot of distance. I actually picked up about 55 yards of carry distance compared to uh, when I was hitting down on it. And it's more fun. It's more fun for me. Do I hit fewer fairways? Yes. Do I hit a few more uh, wild shots? I would say so, yeah. But I also hit it maybe 40 yards farther than I did total. Yeah, it's a net, yeah. Yeah, And we've talked about this in other episodes where, you know, the old golf used to think about only left to right dispersion in terms of successful tee shots. It was hitting a fairway or bust. And we now know that adding 20 yards is, is worth a certain amount of strokes. So adding 40 yards, if you're hitting it 40 yards further, but, and you maybe miss a few more fairways around, it's still a net gain in terms of strokes gained. I'm, 
And by the way, it's not always a given that someone's going to hit fewer fairways. I've had players who hit down on it and miss every fairway, and then we do something yep. to make them shallow that angle of attack out or even hit up, and they actually hit it longer and they hit more fairways. So it's not always a loss in fairways for many players as well. But you can you can quantify. They're always well. They can be trade offs, but those trade offs might be worth it. And also the the way equipment is designed now, and the, the modern golf ball. It wants to go with the driver. It wants to go higher with less spin. That is how you maximize the current equipment. And I know there's a debate in the golf world over, you know, what the golf ball and driver used to do, where it was in, you know, the pattern that resulted in the most success 30, 40 years ago was hitting down on it with your driver because it was a different golf ball. It spun more. It was a different head. Um, I can't change that. I'm if you want to hit the ball as far as you can and, and maximize the current equipment setup, you're for most golfers, you're gonna to want to hit more up on it. What's a couple of quick let's give someone a a quick um homework assignment here. Give someone a good drill if they want to hit more up on it with a driver. What should they do? Oh, I, I, I'm not so fussed on drills. I mean, they're feedback devices. You can put things in front of the golf ball. Like, do you like the tee box thing or the or the tee before? Like, I know some people have like a lower a tee right before the actual tee that then they don't want to hit that tee or they put a, a a box of balls in front of it and try not to hit it. Do you like physical barriers or you're just trying to get people to think about it? I just get people to do do it. I I mean, I, I have those drills as feedback devices. So, you know, if you hit up on it, a lot of players will thin the ball. And so placing a small tee before it and asking players to hit both tees, that will prevent any thin shots as you're hitting up. But just getting the setup correct, so, you know, ball position slightly more forwards. People can overdo that, though. Um Getting the upper body and, and lower body a little bit more behind it as well. So maybe adding a little bit of tilt away from the target. So those type of things. And then visualizing. So, I, you know, using the nail through the ball and I angle it up towards the sky and say, how would you hammer that? And people tend to get the right body positions in order to achieve that. There's a hell of a lot of good information in our instinct. I think most people, just based on my observations in my own game, um, simply by putting the ball further up in your stance and perhaps teeing it higher. This this could change from golfer to golfer. I would test with the Dr. Scholl spray, um, maybe what the right tee height is for you. But you know, for most golfers, moving it up in their stance a bit, if you've got it in the middle of your stance, I, I would experiment with moving it up um, with your tee height. And then I, I do that. What Adam suggests is like, I kind of have my, if you think of a line on my shoulders, that line is pointing up towards the sky. So my right shoulder is dipping down a bit. I'm, I'm, And you can see this with a lot of golfers and their setup, especially the ones who hit it really far. That line is pointing to the sky. It's not pointing straight. So those are a few things you could experiment with. Uh, ball position, tee height, and then you know the, the tilt of your body. Um, those are the three that I work on. One thing I'm going to add to that is one of the biggest reasons that why golfers hit down on it is actually because of their swing path. They swing too much to the left. And sometimes putting the ball further forwards in the stance, they then open their shoulders up. Does that make sense? So a player will yeah. put the ball further forward and then they kind of open their chest out towards a target because it's such a weird position. So learning how to have a ball that's farther forward in the stance and tilting your shoulders correctly 
to get that club to the ball instead of just opening the shoulders out. So as you said, if a good way to do this is club across the chest and then feel as if the shoulders are square at address or relatively square. Don't have to be perfect. Uh, but the, the, the front side is higher than the, the back side. So the lead shoulder is higher than the, the trail shoulder. So if you can get that correct, that tilt with the shoulders and the orientation of the shoulders, then you're in a good position. Yeah, but I think the overall answer to that question is that I think I believe most golfers have more to gain than to lose by trying to by learning how to hit more up on it. Um, again, yeah, everyone has. There's certainly examples of golfers who would not do well with that pattern, but you know that's why you have to experiment and, and pay attention to what's going on. Um, and, and I think what what we'd love to do is do a whole episode on how to hit your driver as far as possible, because that's certainly a a big part of it is positive angle of attack. Um, I'm ringing the bell. I think we're going to get to the fourth question. Okay, let's do it. Okay. And this will probably tie into question number two. Here it is. The best way to gap your clubs, range balls and mats can be deceiving. Can you get a baseline with one club and then go plus or minus 10 yards as you go through the bag? What are the best practices? So essentially, you know, how do you gap your clubs? I think there's a few different ways to answer this with technology or, you know, I'll talk about the range ball stuff, but why don't you take a stab at this first? Well, if you have to just get one club and then gap based off that, uh, I stole this, by the way, and I don't know who I stole it from. It was on Twitter. <laughs> I believe it was uh, someone who works for Ping. I think it was someone who works for Ping. So I'm, I'm really sorry. Whoever this is from, take all credit for it. But I thought it was a neat way of doing it. And I might not even do it correctly. But figure out how far you hit your pitching wedge. So I hit my pitching wedge thir- 130 yards. And then divide that by 10. And that's your gapping. So I would typically get about 13 yards difference between each club from there. So pitching wedge, 130-ish, uh, 9-iron, 143, 8-iron, yeah, 156, something, something close to that. I mean, I hit my pitching wedge a little bit farther than that, so 135. And then it's about a 13-and-a-half, 13-yard gap from there. I believe that's the right, uh, that was the right gapping. So, And that will depend on certain things as well. If you're a really low-speed player, um, those gap gappings might bunch together a little bit more. More than than it would say, but I think it's a nice rule of thumb if you have to, you know, on grass get that one club and then gap based off that. Yep. I don't think there's a perfect way to do it. I I like to use I cross reference. I use different data points, and I'll just I, I feel like I have I'm very confident on the course with how far I hit each club, and I'll I'll explain how I arrive at that. Um, but let me first talk about range balls because I didn't experiment on range balls. Um, I spoke with Dean Snell, who owns Snell Golf. He was one of the guys who invented the Pro V1. Um, so I did a, a test where I took limited flight range balls, normal range balls, and then tested it against a premium golf ball. Um, there are significant differences. And this this is one of the problems with you know why I say you want to use multiple data points Range balls are not good golf balls. And what I mean by that is they're, you know, solid rubber core with a cheap exterior. Um, You'll have inconsistencies at each range with the ball or, you know, different different ranges will use different quality. Um, So I can just give an example here of a seven iron. On a normal range ball, I hit a seven iron 168 yards. I carried it. A limited flight range ball was 156. The 
Snell ball, which is a Pro V1 equivalent, was 176. So there's a big difference. You know, there was an eight yards difference between a normal range ball and a premium ball. So, you know, I caution people like range ball is a good starting point, but it's not going to be perfect because they're just not great golf balls. They spin differently. Um, you know, the cores are different. The ball speed will usually be a little less. Um, so range can be decent. Um, what I do is I use a combination of my launch monitor, I, what I'm hitting at home. I have tracked my game on the course using a system like ShotScope or Game Golf when they were in business. So I was tracking my shots on the course and seeing how far I was actually hitting an eight iron, a nine iron. Um, so I take a combination of all of that. And then that's how I arrive at my numbers. Like I know I hit a seven iron between, you know, 170 to 183 yards based on how well I hit it. Um, so I like to use as much information as possible because each one on its own could be deceiving. Like on my simulator at home, I'm probably going to be hitting the ball a little bit further because there's less pressure. I'm striking it really well. I'm using a mat. So it's not really the same surface as the grass. Um, but then if you track it on the course, you know, there's wind conditions, like different elevation changes. So that's not necessarily perfect either. But if you use a bunch of them together, you kind of get a clearer picture. Um, so that's how I do it. I, I, I try and use multiple, multiple ways of verification, I guess is the way to put it. Yep. I'm the same. (laughs) That's question over, I think. Yeah. I think I, I, I would tell anyone if you want to do, I think doing a gapping session, like I know a lot of, um, instructors who have trackmans or GC quads or club fitters, you can rent time with them. And you can kind of go through your bag and hit a bunch of shots and they'll they'll show you where you're at. Um, I do think the shot tracking devices, Arcos, ShotScope are the two best out there. Um, I'll have a little plug in there. I'm, we're, we're still running our deal on ShotScope. The V3 system's awesome. Um, I think that's an eye-opener for a lot of golfers because you're actually tracking real short, real shots on the course. And the way that these systems work is they'll take out your bet, like if you top the seven iron, they're going to take that out. So they kind of show you a player average. Um, so it'll kind of factor in everything averages out over time. If you hit 77 irons over time, you're going to get a pretty good idea of how far you're hitting it. So I think the on-course tracking is helpful too, because that is really how far you're actually hitting the ball under pressure. Um, so yeah, if you can book some time on a, on a, a good launch monitor or, or get one of your own, um, and then pay attention to what's going on on the course. You can, you could, you could physically take that data too. At the end of the round, like you could write down how far you hit a shot. Yeah, I always like to take uh, data relative to how far a person intended to hit it as well. Uh, that is very telling because I used to do it a lot where I would tell people, "No, you need to hit more club. You need to hit more club," and no one ever listened. But when I started getting people to keep track of their own stats, and so. You know, they would say, even even on the range, I would say, how far do you hit a 7-9? And they go, I hit it 170. I say, okay, then we're going to play a game. You get a point every time you hit it between 165 and 175. And then after about 100 shots, they don't have any points because <laughs> they just can't reach there. And so quickly then I say, do you want to change that number now? And they go, yeah, maybe I hit my 7-9 160. And then they start to increase their points. So just you know, playing games like that, seeing how many you can get five yards either side of a certain number and seeing how, how much you can rack up the points, that's a better way of doing it. Or even on the course, 
you know, just noting down if, if a flag is a certain distance and after you hit your shot is 10 yards short, just make a little checkpoint or, or write down minus 10 in a notebook. And over time, you'll start to see, wow, I'm hitting a lot of minus numbers. Maybe I think I hit this, this club farther than I actually do. So, you know, it's another helpful tool on the course. Um, a lot of, of the newer GPS watches, like I have a Garmin watch, it automatically shows you on the top of the watch. It senses when you hit a shot and then there's a counter on top of it. So when you arrive to the ball, you'll see how far you hit it. So I pay attention to that a lot on the course, especially with a driver, um, you know, just for ego purposes, I want to know how far I hit that one. Um, but yeah, let's say I hit an eight iron and I walk up to my ball, I could say, Oh, I hit that, you know, 171 yards. I juiced that one or sometimes it's 152 yards. So I'm paying attention to these things on the course. So, um, a lot of GPS watches have that ability now and that that's been pretty helpful for me. And I, I always tell people to pay attention to that. You just have to be a little careful with the on-course data because obviously drives could be downhill or, yeah, you know, yes. your tee box is higher or there's a little wind behind or in front or it's colder that day and all these things affect the variables. That's why I love the kind of indoor environments. The disadvantage is the type of grass you're hitting off. You know, if you're hitting off a range mat, you can get dodgy numbers. But I actually have a range mat that I've got the fiber built one. So it, it doesn't have that bounce up on a fat shot so it gives more realistic uh, distances from what I've found uh, but yeah I like getting the numbers in an indoor environment like this and then when you go outside you can use your knowledge to adjust those numbers based on this is downhill this is into the wind this is cold today so yeah that's how I like to do it but yeah you gotta you gotta draw from all these different sources of information really and and come to a logical conclusion which is again it's another psychological thing right it's it's not all about technique it's knowing your numbers is is key and knowing how to adjust them is just as the same as knowing your shot patterns directionally is important, how to adjust, adapt, or play for them. That's why I continue to get messages from people saying their handicap dropped <laughs> simply by aiming to the number on the back of the green <laughs> because it, it fixes a lot of the, the, the major problems for golfers. Um, so we did it. We got all four questions in. We're at our hour mark. Um, Please reach out to us with feedback. We love the feedback. If you liked this episode where we kind of tackled a different, we mixed in several topics at the same time, not to say that we're not going to do episodes in the future that will be dedicated to one topic, but um, this is kind of fun. I'd like to maybe mix this up. Maybe every few episodes we'll do a mailbag. So keep sending in your questions and your feedback. Uh, Adam, do you have any closing thoughts on what we did here? Did, were you as excited about it as I was, or was this a total disaster for you? <laughs> no, it actually when I when I saw some of the questions, I was like, oh, these really don't enthuse me. But this was it was good. It was a good conversation. These I were the it. best of the best. So we can't, yeah. you know, now if we now if we take questions on another episode, the person who sent it in is gonna be like, oh, I wasn't the first. Uh, I was I was second second tier questions. But no, we always appreciate people getting in touch with us. There is no stupid question, right? Or no bad question. Sorry. Just just ones that I might not want to answer. <laughs> exactly. Well, some of them are just like, you know, I'll, I'll look at one here again. What is the quickest way to eliminate double bogeys? Um, I've oh. written 400 plus articles on practical <laughs> yeah. golf <laughs> to answer that question. Like, That'd be a long episode. <laughs> yeah, that would, that would perhaps be like my lifetime of explaining that to people. Um, I think we're answering that question on every episode because that's really what we're doing here is double bogey avoidance. Um, Adam? Let's wrap it up. 
where can everyone find you on the interwebs? HTTPS <laughs> forward slash forward slash adamyounggolf.com. And you can find me, John Sherman, at practical hyphen golf. That's it. We'll, we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, guys.